0: Welcome to Invalid Culture, a podcast dedicated to excavating the strangest and most baffling representations of disability in popular culture. Unlike other podcasts that review films you've probably heard of, Invalid Culture is all about the abyss of pop culture-adjacent media that just never quite broke through because, well, they're just awful. I'm your host, Erica.
1: And I'm your other host, Jeff. And it's time now for us to think about some culture that might just be invalid.
2: I'm arguing with strangers on the internet. Not going out today because I'm feeling too upset. Arguing with strangers on the internet, and I'm winning. And I'm winning!
0: Welcome back to another episode of Invalid Culture. It's that time of year, y'all. Chrismica is upon us, and that means it's time for our festive holiday special. Jeff, how you doing?
1: <laughs> uh, so hype. Very excited. Uh, I'm really looking forward. I mean, not that last year's Christmas episode uh, was any slouch. I mean, it's not every day you get to interview a literal movie star on your podcast. Um, but uh, no shade to Hallmark. Uh, this was a much more heartwarming uh, Christmas tale, in my opinion. Huh. A silence. Complete silence.
0: <laughs> heartwarming is not how I would have described this film, unless you are maybe making a reference to the Torch Mob.
1: Yeah, we, we are different people, Erica. I think that should be, uh, that should be mm. very clear. I do uh, forget and that sometimes. We're not just different people. We also, as always this season, have a different person with us, Today, we are joined by our guest victim, uh, Sarah. Sarah, can you give us a an introduction for our fair listeners?
2: Sure. My name is Sarah, and I professionally do nothing for a living. I am (laughs) finishing up my doctorate in disability, and I teach classes, and I watch a lot of movies and pretend that that's an important service to society.
1: As a media scholar I can confirm it is. Naturally. <laughs> it sounds like you
2: are in the right place. Yeah. There is no bias here whatsoever as to the veracity of my job.
1: Could you uh, could you share some some what are, what would what would some of our listeners know you from uh, published work or uh studies or anything anything movies?
2: Movies. <laughs> the long list of films that I have appeared in. <laughs> yeah. Um you may know me from rants that sound slightly detached from reality on twitter or sharing resources online or publications about udl in such fantastic venues as criticism literature journal of multimodal rhetorics mosaic
1: that's it but no future films
2: but no future films no, um, I actually turned down the Deadpool movie that's coming out next year because I'd really like to do my dissertation defense.
1: Right. Priorities, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. So, Erica, I think you need to tell us what monstrosity uh, did we have to endure this year?
0: This year, the gift that just keeps on giving is Christmas Evil. Christmas Evil. Brings us the vivid tale of the life of Harry Stadling, a man traumatized as a child by the sight of his mother, getting frisky with St. Nick. Making Freud proud, this traumatic event, leads to a lifelong obsession with Santa Claus and all things Christmas. Until 30 years after the trauma, the lines between Harry and Santa begin to blur. Troubles at the toy factory he works at and the negative body hygiene of local bad boy Moss Garcia eventually push Harry over the edge. Those who stand against the Christmas will die. Dressed as Santa, Harry goes on, of part donating toys to disabled kids, part murder rampage, to punish those who don't want to hear the, quote, tune he's trying to play, end quote, <clears throat> whatever that means. Eventually, he confronts his financially successful repo man brother, Philip, for denying his traumatic observations. And after tussling for a bit and eventually punching Philip, Harry loads up into his Santa van, flying off into the cold night to escape the torch-wielding mob that is hunting for him.
2: That's actually, like... A better summation than actually subjecting yourself to the film. Like that that did a lot of work rhetorically to save people a lot of time and trauma.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's about a hundred minutes condensed into uh into a tight paragraph.
2: I'd like to draw attention to the fact that the first 45 minutes of this film was actually expository content to a plot line that basically didn't exist.
1: <laughs> right. Yes, 100%. 100%. We're just
2: like like putting in the time before we can start killing people. Yeah, it it really, it took a really like Tolkien-esque approach (laughs) to what was, yeah, what was a film that was fairly devoid of any context whatsoever. Like it took me 20 minutes into the film to figure out that his peeping Tom house was his brother's house because there were so many balding, middle-aged brunette males in the film, I had trouble keeping track. Every single male cast fit that description, and it made it really hard.
1: Is this why I like the film so much? Am I drawn to the brunette male demographic? Yeah, did you feel,
2: which character did you relate the most to?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, Moss Garcia. Moss Garcia. (laughs) Moss...
2: That's
0: the child that asked for a subscription to Penthouse or Playboy. <laughs> magazine.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, we are already cutting into this and joking around, uh, sure. but our opinions don't matter because there are legitimate scholars who have weighed in on the quality of this film, and we think it's important for us to give fair shake uh, to that critical response. this film. Uh, There wasn't a lot of critical response because it's actually kind of hard to get your hands on this film back in the 1980s. However, one Tom Huddleston uh, wrote on Time Out gave the film a four out of five, uh, and most importantly, gave us this great quote. Uh, So Tom Huddleston says, quote, in contrast to most slasher flicks, this isn't about anything as simple as revenge. Jackson's concerns are bigger social responsibility, personal morality, and the gaping gulf between society's stated aims at Christmas time charity, hope, goodwill to all men, and the plight of those left on the outside, the children, the mentally ill, the ones who don't fit in. Bizarre, fascinating, thoughtful, and well worth a look. These are the words of Tom Huddleston, Um, of those attributes, Sarah, how many of them were accurate for, to you?
2: There were four, I guess I would go. Oh, for four. Um, the closest he gets is maybe well worth a look, but it, it kind of has the same ethos as like rubbernecking for me, where you kind of, you look at the car accident and you know, you shouldn't be looking, but you also can't look away because now you've already seen it. So you feel invested. That was my relationship. To Christmas evil.
1: Yeah, what about you, Erica? I,
0: I guess I—I I mean, I was watching it, and you know, there's—we'll get there. But there's there's like a this strong kind of like anti-capitalist vibe in the film that I think just turned me a little more compassionate towards it. I was like, okay, you're kind of speaking my language here. Tell me more. This is weird, but but I'll keep listening. Um, and and so you know, I, I could see you know maybe, maybe Tom was coming from a similar place.
1: Right. Yeah. Like, I I think like I came for the disability narrative. I stayed for the strong union rhetoric. (laughs)
0: Yes,
2: (laughs) it's true. The unionization undertone that outplayed the entire film was actually more resonant than the core storyline, which I'm not sure is what they were going for, but that's what they got.
1: Tom wasn't the only one, though, who enjoyed this film. In fact, there are some pretty famous people, that, uh, like John Waters, who have stated that this is maybe the best Christmas movie he has ever seen, which what? is a nuclear hot take. <laughs> uh, but people on Amazon also have some affinity for this film. Uh, specifically, we have our user Earl Awesome, pretty sure that's his real name, uh, gave this a five-star with the title, Best Christmas Movie Ever. Period, ever all caps two evers. Uh, this is what Earl had to say about the film. I was hesitant to order this, but when I read a statement from John Wall Waters, if you don't know him, you should, saying it was the best Christmas movie ever. He was right. What's more is that this movie is where the idea for quote Joker came from. Everything in Hollywood is copied. You watch the protagonist descend into madness as the holiday season approaches. It's an all-too-real comment on the way holidays can play with the mental health of some. Great acting, great story, great movie. Five stars. So uh, I just want to contest right off the bat uh, that the Joker existed... Like decades before uh, this film was ever made, so this is definitely not where the idea for the Joker comes from. Uh, in in sort of any way, uh, I think there's probably a few other movies like Taxi Driver that also would like to have a a word on that. But um, but the question I have for for you, Sarah, um, would you say that this uh, that this movie was a comment on the way that holidays can play with the mental health of some?
2: know where he's coming from with this because while I was watching this and this, this is kind of a reductive comment but Harry our protagonist our possibly actually real Santa Claus depending on how you read the ending um is kind of a confusing potpourri of mental illnesses and symptoms that don't ever really congeal into one credible diagnosis and I thought the reference to the Joker was really good because at least Christopher Nolan's version that is also a character that's kind of a confusing mass of symptomology that doesn't actually cohere with anyone's real lived experience of psychosis so I appreciated that somebody had read like a comic book at some point and identified like okay here are some core mental illness symptoms They just didn't care too much for the cohesion of those symptoms into something resembling a diagnostic disorder. And you can argue about whether, you know, somebody needs to meet the criteria of a diagnostic disorder to be a credible mentally ill protagonist. But all that to say, I don't know if it actually even takes on mental health problems at Christmas because it just kind of takes on the problem of being completely unable to identify how mental health interacts with a person in general. So if you can't even get it into the person's psyche, I don't know how you're going to then translate it to the level of your psyche's interaction with a holiday, right? Does that make sense? That's actually a, a surprisingly um, reasonable segue into our next
0: review. <laughs> which thank you. Comes... I
2: thought you were going to say a, a surprisingly reasonable answer, and I'd be like, thank you. I'm here to defy expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Glad you set the bar so low. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, so Megalon, maybe also dealing with some low standards, gave this a five star review titled Fantastic in which they wrote quite possibly the greatest movie about a man obsessed with Christmas ever made. The depiction of psychosis is frighteningly real. And yet there are moments of hilarity and shocking violence. Highly recommend three exclamation points. I mean, Not I shake. guess <laughs> my, my, my first question is like, what about, um, elf? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That is actually arguably a better depiction of psychosis than Christmas Yeah,
0: Yeah, I mean, that was going for, you know, Man of Seven Christmas, but totally, like, and like, what what about this depiction of psychosis was um,
1: frighteningly real?
2: Real or frightening. (laughs) If we again return to the kind of metaphor of somebody read a comic book that lightly referenced a villain with mental illness and then they modeled their character with psychosis after that yes that would be frighteningly realistic and incredibly you know expository as to the hyperbolic mentally ill villain who cannot be understood and every action he takes is both confusing and incredibly tragic is that the lived experience of psychosis in my mind and my community's mind, I think it would be an emphatic no from everyone <laughs> in the room.
1: <laughs> uh, our last review uh, comes from us. Again, I'm pretty sure this is their real name. Uh, Davy Dissonance. Um, Davy gave this a two star um, with the title, the picture quality is watchable and audio is good. Movie review. Um, yeah, I'm gonna try my absolute best to not laugh during this. Uh, so I'm gonna try and do David justice here. Uh Davy did not love the film. Uh okay. Davy says, as everyone else pointed out, it's not a slasher movie. It is a demented Christmas movie, pretty much. There are moments when Santa kills, but it's one home invasion and mass slaughter. That's it anything else is Santa having a period about the fact that no one gives a shit about Christmas or whatever. I didn't hate this movie. I don't regret ever watching this, but it's not my thing. It's innovative and different, but for some reason I do not give one F about it. I found the movie boring, so up yours. Wow. Is David Dissonance (laughs) Harry?
2: Is Harry Santa Claus?
1: (laughs) Well, okay. So that's going to be a better place for us to start. Number one, does Davey not realize that there is a difference between Harry and Santa?
2: I, I don't know if I understand if there's a difference between whether there is a difference between Harry and Santa Claus. The last 45 seconds of that film, I was up for an extra hour last night just laying there thinking about it. Does that mean that was he Santa the whole time? What is the joke on the viewer that we were making fun of this guy, but that guy has actually been the real Santa for the entirety of this film. And all that context building for the first 45 minutes is actually irrelevant.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's an important question.
2: I have another
0: important question. Uh, is Davey, I haven't I haven't heard this phrasing before, but when, when Davey asks, is Santa having a period about the fact that no one gives a shit? It, are, are we, is having a period, like, slang for being crazy or having, like, an episode?
1: So I had this question as well, as someone who did not get sex education. Um, I don't also understand how periods work. Um <laughs> And so I also was curious about this. Like, do you just have a period? Like, do you bring it on? Is it triggered by things?
2: That is a mid-millennial slang for PMSing about something. Are we early millennials? Is that what happened here? I'm not saying that that's what happened, but I might be strongly implying that that's what happened.
1: But still a confusing one to me. (laughs) Given my limited knowledge of how femininity works.
2: 100%. I think that uh, Davy Dissonance can be accused of some anti-feminist rhetoric if we subscribe to third or fourth wave feminism, and Amazon did not do a good enough job curating that review for use of language that could be offensive to 50% of the population. I mean, how did they mess up yours?
1: From now on, I'm just going to put this out there, though. Every time I now write a review about a movie and possibly academic books, I'm ending it with, <laughs> so up yours.
2: If you don't disagree, if you don't agree with this, up yours. I might, I might, I might argue
0: that academic writing is just very, very fancy and creative ways of, of saying up yours without saying
2: it. It's true. Davey went the extra step of saying the quiet part out loud and I appreciate him for it. <laughs> yeah, props for that.
0: <laughs> All right, so, I mean, we've heard what the critics had to say, but let's just you, take a step back. General impressions of this film, what did you guys
2: think? I had a lot of trouble with the light pedophilia vibe that permeated <laughs> this entire film. It made me deeply uncomfortable. And it really does nothing to address it. Like It normalizes it to such an extent that you would find it weird if this film was your only context for 80s New York men if they weren't into little girls and had pictures of them on their nightstands and shit. Which I thought, for a number of reasons, was just weird. The... (laughs) I did really like how much content there was on the willowy springs hospital for mentally retarded children um and that was the words they used not the words i'm using um i wrote down <laughs> this is my kind of head canon uh, the real villain in this movie is intense social anxiety this is really <laughs> about harry's journey <laughs> with not wanting to be in spaces with other people or talking to others and everything else is just a byproduct.
1: Would you say that this was a frighteningly real portrayal of social anxiety?
2: I think especially the scene where he goes, this is about halfway through the movie, where he goes to the Christmas party and they drag. Egg him in against his will. And then he's standing and everyone's staring at him. And he starts assuming that they're gonna start shit talking him. I was like, that's actually a pretty good depiction of how social anxiety works in real life. And I do not think they were going for that at all, but it ended up being a fairly accurate depiction of a kind of medically treatable variant of anxiety. That was laudable in this film
0: so that actually dovetails really well with my read on the film for me like this this quickly just morphed into a trauma narrative um i mean it's obviously set up to be that but it kind of set me off on this contemplation about um about trauma and like generational trauma and the role of trauma in mental health Um, that, that was really what I spent, I think the greater part of this movie thinking about, uh, the, the, the pedophilia question came up for me too. So we're going to have to spend a little time with that. Um, it, it was indeed, uh, difficult, very difficult to get through this film. I'm not a horror film. Um, you know, I'm really, that's not, that's not my genre, but, um, it, but yeah, there was a, the, the Willowbrook bit too really that kind of threw me. I guess it, that that pulled me in too, because it was like, wait a sec, what why? Whoa, whoa. What what in the the creation of this film led to that becoming part of the story? Um and um, you know, to the point that they found a like Geraldo look-alike to be the newscaster um like that that was that was curious to me
1: yeah yeah i i think like when we picked this film originally we hadn't seen it yet uh and i think going into it i thought we were going to get this sort of like typical kind of schlocky like oh crazy man goes on a rampage uh and i'm not saying we didn't get that but we also got a lot of other confusing things as well that i was not expecting um and I now, in my head, just constantly hear, Mos... Mos... Garcia! Mos Garcia! <laughs> uh, in my head. Uh, and I'm going to put that in the positive category. Uh, I also uh, want to see Mos Garcia and get what's coming to him as uh, as the original bad boy, the original Fair. bad boy of New York. Uh, And that young Mas Garcia would eventually become Rudy Giuliani.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But in this timeline, Harry is actually older and Harry might be the original, original bad boy. A, if he's Santa, because that means he's immortal. So that puts his age as ageless. But B, because the characterization of him is ostensibly a middle-aged man with a burn book and a Santa kink.
1: Right. Basically. That's pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anti hero, some might say.
2: It's me. I'm the problem.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the high level stuff, but I'm sorry. Can we please talk about the inciting incident? This movie begins with a scene in which two young boys are witnessing Santa uh, come down, wash his hands in a hand washing station, uh, as apparently you're supposed to do for Santa. I did not do that in our household. Uh, He then butters himself some bread, uh, which I also think is pretty like off myth. Um, uh, He drinks some milk. Uh, and and everything's great. but unfortunately young Harry comes down and watches Santa um moan very suggestively at his mother while uh, taking off her garter belt uh and then presumably um consummated the relationship <laughs> um presumably uh and Harry then goes upstairs, he drops his uh snow globe and cuts his hand on it um.
2: I really thought they were going to do more and I'm not condoning this, but I thought they were going to do more with the self-harm narrative as the inciting incident for violence. Like I thought it was going to be a kind of the machinist thing where wherever he sees blood or the instantiation of food or eating, he goes into this kind of inarticulate psychosis and begins murdering people. They did that once and then dropped that whole concept from the rest of the film, which I thought was kind of unfortunate because it was a somewhat interesting way to do it, Um, but still problematic. It's worth pointing out that that's not how psychosis works in real life. There are such things as triggers, but if they have a self-harm trigger, it does not, you know, compel psychotic individuals to... Uh, activate incredible violence upon the viewing of blood or any such um, alternate instantiation and I think that's worth pointing out I, I'm just
0: remembering him now like the fact that Santa Santa's costume was perpetually like covered in blood I hadn't really thought about that like the blood um, yeah that, that wasn't what stuck with me first of all I just was very confused so when you know the the boys think that the boys think it's dad being Santa,
2: and, the and that,
1: Philip does. Philip believes it's the father, and Harry believes it's actually Santa.
2: That's actually their core, like like that's what drives the ethos of the film. This disagreement that separates two brothers, but also apparently completely separates mental states yes. <laughs> between the two brothers. But I remain confused.
0: Yes. Was that his, was it, his dad? was it their dad? I don't know.
1: According to the box, it was his father. He does like the, the description of the film says he witnessed his father dressed as Santa. Now, I'm not a psychologist uh or a psychiatrist, um, but I want to dig into this Oedipal complex a little bit more because so he has this desire for his mother. Um And Santa, I guess, gets his mother. And so then he becomes obsessed with Christmas uh, 33 years later. Um, Because when we see him next as an adult, his house is like Santa's workshop. Like, it is, like, decked out. He has a chalkboard counting down the days to Christmas. He has, like, every toy, like, everything. And then, of course, his, like, proximity to Santa becomes, like, more and more evident as as it goes on. Um, but I'm just curious about like, like what Freud would think about this, like he sees his mom, and then it's like, I will become Santa.
2: I mean, I hate Freud. that's my bias. I just I think his theories are fucking useless. Um, I think a better reading than Freud would give. But maybe Freud would be sympathetic to would be something like Harry is enlivened by the sexual potentiality of specifically Christmas and begins to associate any kind of sexual action with the prospect of Christmas Eve without really taking too much time to think, you know, it's possible his parents have also done these actions at other points of the year. And becomes so sexually fascinated by the relationship between Christmas Eve and the lewd acts performed that he's just caught in this continuous loop of Christmas, sex, mother, sexiness, Santa in this recurring spiral of illness.
1: Which admittedly sounds like a nightmare. Like if I put myself into that situation of 33 years of weird sexual Christmas tension. Yes. Nightmare. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder though, why has no one said anything about this to him?
2: There's kind of the implication at the end of the movie that this is A a somewhat regular argument between the brothers Phil and Harry when they're having their kind of penultimate argument before the punching scene and he's like you've ruined my life we we can't keep doing this kind of thing and calling back to all these occasions where they've argued over whether Santa's their dad and that inciting incident in the 30s and because of this incident I think instead of causing Harry to question his drawn relationship between repressed sexuality and Christmas Eve or Christmas, it reinforced it for him, right? Kind of the same way if you tell a child you can't have the Kit Kat bar, they become obsessed with wanting the Kit Kat bar. You don't even have to like Kit Kat. If I tell you you can't have it, that's all you want at this point, even if just to spite me. And that's a very Freudian reading of our desires and how desire mechanics work and kind of a psyche. But he seems to be enacting that in his relationship to Smut and Christmas time.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's necessary. Like, I definitely the the film communicates the, the like the ethereal vibe is there, but. I think like another another read of it is not necessarily sexual in that way that he is just like he's so upset at seeing Santa do what santa like Santa's supposed to be innocent. And I think like he he goes on this like life mission of recuperating Santa's innocence that like Santa did it wrong. i'm gonna i i'm I'm gonna fix this. I'm the real santa. I'm gonna fix this. I'm going to. And, and that like, that also kind of like wraps in the um, the you know he's obviously upset about the 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 Moss <laughs> Moss, Moss is Garcia wow. <laughs> Moss <laughs> Garcia. <laughs> you can't
2: just say it normally. You have to say it like he says it. <laughs> Moss Garcia.
0: It's just like the it's like sex isn't part of Christmas. Sex is bad. It is not part of Christmas. And that. So there's, this kind of brings, brings up that, that, that pedophilia um, question, because I I think like pedophilia is one read of it, but the other read of it is this like, kind of, there's something paternal and there's also something like infantile about his relationship or his, you know, he's, he's grasping onto this um, kind of childhood innocence
2: which is notably a trait that many people associate with mental illness, often yes. erroneously. I think he was intentionally written to be childlike and almost kind of nymph-like. And you laugh at his attempts at interacting with adult society because he's just so infantile and innocent. But, but the fact that the pedophilia like, yeah. comes
0: out, it's, it's almost like they, they, they didn't commit to that. They didn't commit to us feeling innocence about his sexual, um, conversation with children.
2: So if he thinks Santa did it wrong, is Santa doing it right for Harry doing it with much younger girls?
1: An interesting query.
2: That's a big yikes from me for Harry. (laughs)
1: The first
2: thing he says to one of the girls in the alley when he meets up with them, he says like some inane comment to Moss Garcia. But then to the girl in the group, he goes, You're very beautiful. And I was yeah. like visibly cringing <laughs> at that line when he says it.
1: Yeah. Well, he does the same when he sort of strokes the picture, right? He's yeah. like, Oh, beautiful.
0: Right. Uh, real quick, why does he have a picture? Of the child. Where
1: did he, how did he get this photo?
2: And it seems to be a school photo. Yeah. Like he got that from someone. <laughs> Which sort of,
0: like, it, it sort of gives the impression, you know, when I saw the school photo, I was like, did his, did his parents, did, did her parents give him that? Like, is he, yep. is he accepted as like the, you know, like he, is that, how, is that part of how he's perceived by others is as this, like, you know, um, mentally ill or disabled like older man who the neighborhood is kind of like oh we accept him he's just you know he's he's just the weirdo
2: that was definitely the function of philip's wife philip's wife was oh team harry the entire film and i actually loved it because she comes downstairs and uses her sexuality, which I think is an important element that they did entirely unintentionally, to convince people that Harry is worthy of people's time. So it was this reversal of the sexuality mechanic that's working on a higher level in the film, which again, unintentionally, I think they were using in reverse to try to enforce the message I don't think you should see this guy as some dipshit child. I think he is a man who has struggles like you do and is worthy of the attention that you give to me or the other people at work.
0: I think we also need to talk about the office party and this whole Willow Springs, uh, Willowbrook coming up because like we're talking about, we're talking about sort of who he is and how people perceive him, but he actually has like a, pretty he he's he's in like a like management position at work isn't he
1: yeah he just got uh, just got promoted to management
0: but there's some dynamic there where he's he's sort of being branded as like a sucker right because someone's like calling him and asking him to even though he's been promoted like can you go and do the the lower level work
1: yes yeah he's he's referred to as a schmuck Mm. uh, on more than one occasion
0: and okay so so we're we're at this office party christmas party Everybody's sort of, you know, having a great time. Looks like typical 80s, <laughs> typical 80s office party. Um, as I can imagine. Office parties were typical in the 80s. Um why is why is the 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 Geraldo Dural, um expose coming up on the TV then and there?
1: So I, I have some theories on this. Uh, so I think that there's like a practical. I think there's a practical thing going on here in the film, and then I think there's actually a more interesting thing that I want to actually talk about. So I think on like the very like legitimate practical thing uh, is that I think they're trying to point back to um, things like a Christmas Carol, the idea that like Christmas is when you take care of disabled children, and so they were like, okay, well we need to have these disabled children, and that he finds out that the corporation has said they're going to help but they actually aren't um and this is where the interesting union politics happen because it comes out they have this announcement that like for every like toy that's made they'll then donate a toy to this hospital right and harry harry comes in and is like wow we have enough how many children are there and the like pr and exec guy was like who cares? We're never gonna do it. Basically, he's like, I don't need to know what he killed them. I mean, and so it's like, I'm like, hmm, interesting that this is about generating productivity through a charitable appeal. They're like, we need you to make more toys. So we're gonna bait you with this idea that your extra labor will help sick kids. Um, whether or not that's actually true, which Harry finds out it isn't, and that's kind of what triggers one of his like reasons for killing. Um, but the fact that they would point back to Willowbrook, the institution in New York that famously uh, Geraldo blew up in 1972 as being a horrendous, horrendous place for people with intellectual disabilities um, and other diagnoses, they use this, they intersplice clips from that actual documentary with their fake Geraldo which I'm guessing is because that character returns later in the film, so they needed to like situate him in the world. Um, but it's interesting that there's this like pointing to a really significant moment in kind of disability rights history in the United States, rooted in the brutality of institutionalization, but then it's being leveraged purely as this like emotional appeal justification for why he's going to go off because of this like unexcusable injustice that these children are being given toys. When the actual injustice pointed out by this documentary is nothing to do with toys and everything to do with like state structural problems. But I think probably everyone in New York would know that when they, everyone knew Willowbrook, uh, especially in 1980. Um
2: Okay, can I get you to pause there? Because you have delivered an entire essay in the last three minutes and I'm like (laughs) overwhelmed with things to say. So before you do essay number two, I'd like to respond to to essay number one. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a lot going on with the institutionalization scene. And one of the most complicated parts of it was that 90% of that argument, which you so beautifully articulated, was implied, right? Like there was no dialogue about that whatsoever. You were supposed to see those scenes and it was like a 9-11 for us in the present day where there's about 30 articles that are generated for you upon seeing this and you don't get any of that. If you are not from an American context, or you have never heard of this incident, or you have not done any reading on institutionalization. So that's totally. already incredibly complicated. And I think his relationship specifically to it has a couple competing layers of complication, some of which you've pointed out. But Erica did a great job of pointing out that it's not actually so easy to posit him as this like childish learning disabled character because a we go back to the potpourri of senseless symptoms that make it really hard to even investigate what he was trying to depict but b he is actually really good with children and they go out of their way to show you that at the Christmas party that when you get him out of his shell of social anxiety he's actually brilliant with children and should not be middle management at a factory he should have a child-facing job because he has talents and abilities that are extremely applicable to that so you get the narrative about being like um strung along or pushed into a career choice that people are told are like more worthy employment or more normal employment and normals being used Carefully there. But you also get this storyline about maybe it's not that he is entirely infantile or more relatable to kids. Maybe he has a genuine talent with kids because if Harry was coded as female and had a lot of those traits, we would say, oh, she should, or she should have been a teacher. She should have been an ECE. She should have been all of these child facing roles that are often coded as feminine. And because Harry is a creepy looking, mask presenting guy we see that and they complicate this with the pedophilia storyline we see that as creepy when he's really good with kids when he's a great santa claus i thought when he was repeating that line like merry christmas to everyone over and over again that was a reference to it's a wonderful life I thought that they were trying to bring that back over and over again. And that has an interesting relationship to the institutionalization storyline because that film is about basically ADA laws, right? So I thought that that was intentional where they were doing It's a Wonderful Life and they were doing some of the law rhetorics around institutionalizing kids. Um, But then when you brought up, which movie did you say? Could be that oh, one, a Christmas, too. Carol.
1: A Christmas, a Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol,
2: yes. But I thought it's a wonderful life specifically because of the legal context,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, like when he arrives at Willoway Springs, yes, I thought for sure we were gonna go in and that this he was gonna have another like moment of realization, like another like breaking of innocence. I thought okay. that's where this was going, like he had the breaking of innocence with his dad possibly Santa, uh, and his mom. And then he has the breaking of innocence when he finds out that the corporation is not actually donating toys like they say they are. And then he was going to have this breaking of innocence that the institutions were not all happy places for children. Uh, I thought that's where this was going, but then he just sort of drops off the presents, gets kissed by a nurse, and then flees off into the darkness.
2: Counterpoint, I actually loved this. That scene for me was one of the stronger ones in the film because of what he says to the security guard. So he rolls up as Santa Claus. We're not sure if he's actually real Santa or not, but whatever. And he goes, okay, I've got gifts for children. And the guy brings up, you know, the same bureaucratic rhetoric that stops the toys from being donated in the first place. He says something to the effect of, oh, it's so late at night, you can't give kids toys now. And his rebuttal is like, what a ridiculous argument. Why can't I donate toys to needy children because it's past due hours? Like, just let me drop them off. And it was a really nice callback actually to his argument at the Christmas party where he's using that really stupid tune metaphor But I think it was trying to accomplish something along the lines of everyone here is kind of out for themselves and only doing something insofar as it helps them climb the ladder. And I don't understand why no one else wants to help other people climb the ladder. So the security guard for him is just another instantiation of all the dipshits at his work and his boss and all these people who won't donate won't work in community, come up with stupid bureaucratic reasons to not do things. And he's standing there like, I am literally the image of charity right now. I am literally Santa holding gifts. And you're not letting me do this because it's after hours. That is bonkers.
0: After hours, which is literally when Santa comes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: true. Yeah. (laughs) But also, I'm curious, do you think if the security guard had not let him in, would he have killed the security guard?
2: Definitely. I thought that's exactly where that was going. I thought he was going to start slaughtering anyone who was too into the bureaucratic method. And that would have actually made me love the movie more if he just went around eliminating people who were too hyper-capitalist
1: bureaucrats like middle management (laughs) specifically is his target Yeah. yeah
2: if that was from the beginning his intentional targets and it kept a somewhat coherent mission of just eliminating people who would have been the villains in it's a wonderful life it would have been a pretty good social commentary film
0: But there was also like the way that the the institution staff were like the happiest, most wonderful, gleeful people in the universe. Like, oh, yeah, they're overflowing. It was like, wow, that's a like one read of it anyway, (laughs) is that um, that along that charity trope that like these must be the absolute salt of the earth humans that are in this wretched place with these like, you know, like. Others. Yeah. yeah,
1: I mean, and that's that's this disconnect where it's like they point to an awareness of what was going on at Will- Willowbrook, the actual Willowbrook, but then also present this like completely other world at the Willowee Springs that he actually attends. Yeah.
2: In fairness to people who actually do take on roles at psychiatric institutions, my my bias here is my best friend is a nurse at an adult psychiatric institution. Some of them really are salt of the earth, better than average people. She is doing some incredibly difficult work there and her job is legitimately beyond most people's ability. And I really wanna acknowledge that. That said, it is complete propagandistic nonsense that every single nurse and staff member that works there is a salt of the earth, my best friend type employee. Particularly in the eighties, when they're like the core deinstitutionalization movement is happening in the U.S., Canada,
1: and on Christmas Eve. And I mean, Christmas I think Eve. you are not going to find too many people getting paid what we pay support workers uh, happy on Christmas Eve at work. Probably, yeah.
2: there's a lot happening there with those nurse characters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then I my last sort of question on this one is. Is this the moment when the sexy Santa myth is like confirmed for him? Because he, this is the only instance where he, quote unquote, gets the girl. Uh, this is the only moment where a woman looks at him with sort of loving eyes and kisses him, and he lights up as well. Um, is this is this sort of the confirmation? And then, what does it mean that the confirmation? the sexual confirmation comes from a nurse uh, who are typically seen in sort of this paternal <laughs> kind of way.
2: I love this reading. I did not think about this at all because I was too busy dwelling over the myriad institutionalization rhetorics from my own bias. Um, I think first impression, completely ad hoc, it kind of competes with the sexualization storyline that was already occurring because that storyline was created to be so deeply problematic. And that's not to say this is a non-problematic relationship and therefore those things don't cohere because it is A, also problematic, and B, problematic things can absolutely cohere. But having been rewarded for standing up against bureaucracy, I think was, in the basest way, a positive way of rewarding his behavior which is almost never happening in the movie. This guy spends the first 40 minutes of exposition being shit on for doing things like wanting people to do quality work or showing up to work at all. He's he's all about this community narrative and he gets shit on for it. So when somebody rewards him for doing something for community, I saw that as a pretty big win for him but I'm not sure what that's doing for the sexuality narrative. And I don't think it did anything demonstrable for him either because it never came up again and he didn't pursue her at all. It was just this like little mini reward sequence. Like you did a good thing for others. Well done. And then he moves on to become a mass murderer.
0: I mean, I mean, disagree with me, but I just, I, I, I wonder if this is, you know, I don't know that this was meant to be a film. I, I, this is a recurring kind of theme in the podcast, in the films that we've watched. This wasn't meant to be a film about mental health or mental illness. Mm-hmm. This was meant to be a film that brought sex and murder together and this like psychosis trope was sort of a thing that conveniently bound them together. And so I think that helps to explain like some of the chaotic, the chaotic like readings, like the many, many, many possible readings is like, yeah, we could read a lot of we could read this a lot of ways because the creators did not were not intentional.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's
2: like the curtains are blue problem where you could the curtains are blue for any reason you wanted to be blue really, if there was clearly no intentionality to the reason why the curtains were actually blue.
0: Okay, well, that brings me right to the last thing that we absolutely must talk about in this film, which is just the ending. Like, what? What?
2: Because was that... that Help me out here. (laughs) This broke me as a film theorist. I'm still thinking about this.
1: (laughs) It's okay. So for my first question... Okay. Philip does not narrate any of the other parts of the film, correct? This no like Philip narrates the end of this film. Yeah. What?
2: Because Harry has exited this film at this right. point. And at first, I thought my first impression was when Philip strangled him, the rest of the sequence was actually a dream sequence. And this is what Philip is imagining. And then When the film abruptly ends after, am I allowed to say rape van? Because that is Uh, clearly a rape van.
1: There are no windows.
2: Okay. So when the rape van takes to the sky, like Santa's sleigh into the night, with Santa's sleigh spray painted on the side. Yes. Uh, It is
1: a Santa rape van, if we're going to be fully accurate.
2: It was was a very recognizable sleigh. I'll give him points for artistic integrity on that. So the right man ascends into the sky. And then I thought it is totally possible, given the other plot lines in this film, that this is not a dream sequence. And Harry actually is (laughs) ascending (laughs) to some kind of higher power due to the actions he has taken on Christmas Eve here.
1: Okay, wait, I need to step back here. So are you suggesting that after performing the proper blood rituals, (laughs) you will become Santa?
2: You may or may not actually become Santa Claus if you are enough of a Marxist and you offer up enough bodies of capitalist hags. I don't know. I I was like, this has got to be some kind of hazy, dreamlike sequence, which would be a nice reference to the fact that they were trying to deal with psychosis but they weren't trying to deal with psychosis they were trying to deal with this kind of menagerie of illness symptoms and then somebody said what if it was all a dream and had they actually committed to psychosis that would be a really interesting ending but they didn't but it's
0: you know the way that that scene plays out it's almost like like symbolically like he's he's just fully lost it right like he's driving into the people he's driving he's chaotic he's haphazard he's just like he's like fully lost it and then he um but but then that like it's almost like he he achieved his he he's like ascending because he achieved
2: you will go to heaven if you kill capitalists for the greater good <laughs> yeah <laughs> right like he he did he, he pulled
0: off the robin hood anti-scrooge like he did
1: it wait so are you saying that this movie was the original all good dogs go to heaven
0: that is what i'm saying yes yes
1: so i think it is time for us to play our old favorite game of name that trope uh and this film did have some uh some tropes that we saw uh, that are fairly common i think uh but also some original ones uh, that we haven't seen yet on the podcast. Uh, so uh, first and foremost, we have obviously this disabled event must be seen, must be filmed. Uh, we have this moment, has to be seen. There has to be an origin story because disability is a thing that happens. Uh, you are normal until you're not. Uh, and that is definitely upheld. As far as we know, Harry was normal until he saw his mom getting it on. Was Santa.
2: But he didn't. Okay, this is my problem. He didn't even see that though. He saw Santa kind of playing with her pantyhose. That's all he saw. And then he ran upstairs and then they actually resubstantiate that two different times later. If you make the mistake of thinking, like, well, maybe they got really rough after and they couldn't show that because his flashbacks are to Santa feeling the pantyhose.
1: Yeah, I have a yeah. lot of
2: questions about that.
1: There was a lot of moaning. I will say that there was. There was a th- lot of moaning. Most of this film, there was a lot of moaning. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of moaning throughout this film.
0: Okay, I mean, this hardly even needs to be stated, but we've got the age-old trope um, of mad people as violent or revenge-seeking, murderous. Um, like, if you're going to hurt people, it's obviously because you're crazy.
2: Classic. Particularly for SMI or serious mental illness, class illnesses, which is clearly what they were going for. They wanted some variant form of schizophrenia or psychosis or uh, bipolar with psychotic features and the straight line they draw between he grew up psychotic, therefore his initial instinct after getting angry is ax murdering is just endemic. I could spend every day of my life arguing against this trope and I would never make a feasible difference.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's deployed in the way that we so often just deploy. It's like this like above reproach. It's just naturally accepted. So they don't need to even yeah. explain it. It's like, oh yeah, of course, that's why he's doing this. And it's um, not
2: even an 80s thing, which I think not. is worthy of pointing out. There was a hashtag that went viral I think it was three years ago now. It was hashtag I am not dangerous. And people with SMI class illnesses were posting like a selfie and saying, I have X diagnosis and I have never once like punched a person, never mind killed a person. I don't choose violence kind of thing. And how viral that went really made me stop and think about how I'm perceived. In, you know, the general realm, like I posted a selfie and I am like a perpetually teenage looking white presenting female with really long hair that doesn't help the presentation of not looking perpetually 19. And it it got something like 1500 we tweets of people just saying, you know, schizophrenia can look like this, too. As if the image in everyone's mind was Harley Quinn and Joker until encountering on the internet an image of a normal looking teenage girl and saying, oh shit, like there's also normal people with mental illness. And that seemed to be, at least on Twitter, this crashing of worlds moment, this hashtag
0: well, like fascinating that you're you're sort of zeroing in on this like perpetually 19 look, because that was the other trope that we've kind of already talked about. But this like madness or mad people as like this, like infantile or innocent, like you can yes. be a killer or you can be innocent. These are your options.
2: Definitely. And I <laughs> I'll tell you one of my trade secrets. I do intentionally lean into that when I'm posting online because I'm aware of that stereotype, but I'm also aware that playing into people's confirmation bias is an excellent way to make them believe what you're saying, right? So if I'm willing to give you that win of fine, I am a bit childish, fine, I am a bit young looking, or I'll lean into that myself. Then when I'm making more complicated arguments about psychiatrization, or why um, forensic mental health methodologies aren't working, I've given you that win to kind of breadcrumb you to follow me along on these higher level arguments. And I do that completely on purpose. There is a relationship between me looking in the mirror and me presenting myself online, right? I think there are ways to use that, (sighs) against is the wrong word, but kind of against people in order to get them to complicate their belief against SMI class illness being this pervasive bad thing that is a fail-state condition.
1: So we've talked about the serious stuff. We've done some academicizing, if that is a real word. I think it's time now for us to get a little trivial. So when we look at this film, you might remember me from such films as uh, Christmas Evil was written and directed by Lewis Jackson, who you've probably never heard of, uh, in part because uh, Lewis went on to do predominantly art house type pornography films that are very strange as far as I can understand and also very difficult to find. Having said that, our main character, Harry, is played by Brandon Maggart, who went on to do like a ton of bit parts in television. I honestly, if you have watched a television show, Brandon Maggart has probably been on one episode, a very extensive IMDb, uh, but was also famously in Robin Williams' film, uh, Life According to Garp, uh, which I would like to believe now is a sequel to this film.
2: To be fair to Brandon Maggart, he was genuinely good in his performance. He he was given a terrible script, and he did what he could with it, you
1: know? Yeah. Oh, he was compelling throughout. Yeah. A fully different person, contrary to what they looked like. Jeffrey DeMum, who played Philip, uh, is, I would say, probably the most famous uh, to come out of this thing. Um, it stated it has lots of sort of bit roles but has also been in horror films like The Hitcher and The Blob, uh, was also in The Green Mile. So we have a little bit of sort of locked up institutionalization, disability, mental illness going on here in the in the uh, Jeffrey DeMunn-verse.
0: All right. And uh, I guess that brings us on to production facts. Uh, so this film was originally titled You Better Watch Out. I think it would have worked well as like a subtitle. Okay. Christmas Evil, you better watch out. But who knows? Maybe the sequel is coming.
1: Still waiting. We still wait. waiting. Oh. Forty years later, we're still waiting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, also, apparently, this film was confiscated during the video Nasty Panic in the UK as a film that was deemed obscene, um, which I know we've, you know, uh, I think f- film representation has come a long way in, in 40 years But I think, you know,
1: looking back to the 80s, it's probably pretty obscene. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the fact that it was also, like, written and directed by someone who predominantly had a background uh, in pornography may have played a role in that. But I also wonder if the, like, it's like any time you combine sex and violence, I think that was, like, immediately, like, kind of triggering uh, people. But, uh, yeah, it was confiscated, not convicted, as far as I know. Um, They were like, you can't have access to it, but... um, we're not, sending, we're not sending Lewis Jackson to prison.
2: I am 98% sure. And I did not backtrack because I just didn't want to. But there is a full frontal muff shot in this movie, which is uh, something that I see very, very rarely. And when I read that it was confiscated, my mind immediately went to that take.
1: Yeah, she, she's wearing pantyhose. Okay. She's just putting her pantyhose on and then she turns to him in sort yeah. of a dramatic fashion.
2: You, um, Those are yeah. see-through pantyhose. That is... Even among films getting made now, I do not... I cannot account for too many full frontals of female parts.
1: Yeah, no. and I, I think this movie... <laughs> If nothing else, I think one of the things I felt as we were watching it, and I think it's explained a lot uh, by sort of Lewis Jackson's oeuvre, uh, is uh, it's like the film couldn't decide if it was supposed to be horny or horror and, like, couldn't figure it out. And so it just sort of oscillated between the two, which made it very confusing uh, and strange, I think, as we watch.
2: Sexuality was the horror the whole time.
1: So as we always do on Invalid Culture... Uh, we have to rank our films. We have to rate them. We have to appraise them as academics, as scholars, as scientists. Uh, And we have a completely empirical, uh, fully rigorous grading system, which we use to evaluate our films, as always. Uh, We will be ranking this film on four quadrants uh, with a scale from one to five to determine where it falls on the invalid culture scale. Uh, Like Gulf, The lower the score, the better it is for the film. Okay, our first question. On a scale of one to five, with five being the least accurate, how accurate does this film portray disability?
2: Okay, so I have two different answers to my take on this scale because the institutionalization scene, I think every time I've tried to say that, I've bungled it up. That's amazing. Um, Is actually phenomenally well done. Like it's really, really accurate to a point where you would have had to have completed outside research to really understand what's going on in that scene. So in that way, that's a one. But the protagonist of the movie does not make any attempt to adhere to any kind of real life embodiment of mental illness beyond maybe if you count um, his depiction of social anxiety. So generously, it would be a four. It's probably closer to a five.
0: All right. So I had basically like a very similar read um, to to what Sarah's just laid out. Uh, But just in terms of scoring, I sort of balanced that out, went middle of the road with
1: a 2.5. I I also tried to balance it out, uh, but... Uh, I went into. I was a little harder on it. I gave it a four. Uh, my 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 starting point on this feature was a lot uh, was a lot higher on the scale, so uh, I gave it a four out of five. Okay, this one I am curious about how this one's going to turn out. Scale of one to five, with five being the hardest. How hard was it to get through this film?
2: I would say a three. And I'm going to say a three because there were some genuinely interesting moments that we already discussed, like the Marxist labor dialectic side plot and the whole bit that I don't think we spoke about, about the torchbearers. That was hilarious. I'm not sure it was supposed to be funny, but that made it more watchable for me. And obviously the bits where he is actually interacting with the children is actually quite heartwarming. Like I genuinely enjoyed those scenes where he's not just being relentlessly bullied or killing people or being told by his family members that he is worthless and a failure um, because he is actually really good at interacting with kids. So I don't know, I come out in the middle on it.
0: Uh, So for me, it was really difficult to get you this <laughs> <laughs> I, like i have a hard time getting through movies anyway but i was literally checking like every five minutes to see how much time was left <laughs> and I, I will i will throttle back just slightly because um yes the anti-capitalist uh labor narrative kept me in it so we'll give it a four that's a four for me
2: particularly the 40 minutes of tolkien x exposition. That was a hard decision for this film to sustain because there was just so little plot to expose (laughs) in those (laughs) 40 minutes.
1: So I'm going to expose something about myself here. Uh, So I gave this a one uh, because I felt it was thoroughly enjoyable uh, to watch this film because it was so strange and so bad uh, I I thought it was phenomenal. One of the things we haven't even talked about in this podcast, which is something, um, is the entire police subplot in which they're arresting all the all the Santas well, the all Santas. around. The <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole other part to which was phenomenal. Um, they do the and usual so suspects
2: lineup, and they're all just yelling <laughs> everyone. Yes.
1: I mean yeah there were some things that were really fun I really enjoyed uh all of the like labor stuff in this I thought it was interesting and like how often do you see someone get stabbed in the eye with a toy soldier and then <laughs> someone else get axed to death with a toy axe uh that that's a that's a hard one um,
0: Don't forget the throat slit with the st- tree star yes.
1: yes also that as well yes.
2: The thematic play of all the weaponry used in this film, I really appreciated the commitment. You know, he worked at a toy factory. He was incredibly invested in making his own toys out of palladium silver in his own home workshop. And he used those abilities to enact incredible ultra violence in the clockwork orange sense against people he deemed against the concept of true Christmas
1: and become santa as a result so yeah that's a one that's a one okay so this one i struggled personally immensely with answering um on the scale of one to five with five being the max how often did you laugh at things that were not supposed to be funny (laughs)
2: Yes, I was laughing all the way through this movie <laughs> with the person I watched this with. And very, I don't think there were any jokes actually written for this movie. It was funny entirely unintentionally. <laughs> I guess it would have to be a five, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm following suit on that. It's a, it's a
1: five for me. Oh man, so apparently this is the episode where I am fully out of sync with the uh, with the other judges of this film. Uh, I gave this one a three because. How is that possible? I, actually, I think that a lot of this stuff I think was supposed to be funny. Like, I think she <laughs> was actually, I think there were things that we were laughing at that were intended to be jokes, I think. Um, but that's where I was struggling because I was like, well, wait, like, were we supposed to laugh at Moss Garcia for having negative body hygiene? Because that is a hilarious thing to say about a child objectively. But was it supposed to be funny? And I honestly don't know if it was supposed to be funny, but maybe. But I think there was some other stuff that was definitely supposed to be funny. Okay, our final question. On a scale of one to five, with five being the most, how many steps back has this film put disabled people?
2: See, that it's hard to give this movie a rating Because it's following a strong and long and continuous and endemic tradition of depiction of SMI class mentally ill people, right? So if I condemn this movie's depiction of it, I'm kind of not... Being fair to film in general, because in order to get funded, I'm sure it would have to cohere to some norm of how we depict mentally ill people, but it's also enabling that architecture, right? So when I think of this film alongside films that I think do psychosis really well, like Last Night in Soho that came out last year at TIFF, that is the most accurate depiction of schizophrenia I have ever seen on film. But what it had to do was interrupt 50 some odd years of schizophrenic depiction on film, right? So you had to get people like Anya Taylor-Joy on the cast in order to make that realizable. So am I surprised that this was a brutal, atrocious depiction of mental illness and madness and SMI class illness? No. Can I indict the film for that reason alone i think it's more complicated than that so maybe a 2.5 i
0: i went for on this one i i felt like you know i i gave it a little bit of credit for maybe um exposing the or you know exposing um an unlikely audience perhaps to the um history of institutionalization but that was like a redeeming factor but by and large it was just like that repetition of the the story the the like just painfully familiar tale of madness and violence um that 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 was just yeah i i that, that's where that's where my score came from
1: yeah i uh, i actually also gave it a four uh for almost the exact same reasons um you know, the film might not have taken us any step forward, uh, which is too bad. Uh, but I definitely think if you watch this film, uh, you're probably not going to have uh, great thoughts. Uh, the next time you see a mall Santa and are like, Is this man multi? Is he mentally ill? Am I about to get stabbed? Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna give this one a four.
0: I am dying to find out if this lands in A Crime May Have Been Committed. Please let it be so.
1: The scores are in. The tally is done. I am proud to announce that with a score of 43, Christmas Evil is A Crime May Have Been Committed.
2: I agree with that. That film taken... Even even when we deconstruct it the way we deconstruct it, it really cannot be saved from its fatal anti-heroic flaws of being just so guilty of the most triabstic, you know, unfair mental illness representations.
1: I I think we're gonna put an, a a big asterisk on uh, on this rating, really, uh, because it was largely carried by the fact. Uh, that I am a dysfunctional person who likes bad movies. Uh, without my ability to get through the worst of the worst, uh, this would have been the Jerry Lewis seal of approval. Um, so crimes have been committed with a slight asterisk because Jeff is a broken person.
0: Are we I all think you're beautiful,
1: Jeff? That's true. That's the point of this show. We're more beautiful for having been broken. Which is a reference that you will understand come February. (gasps) And thus concludes another episode of Invalid Culture. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it or not. Do you have a film you would like for us to cover on the pod or even better? Do you want to be a victim on Invalid Culture? Head over to our website, InValidCulture.com, and submit. We would love to hear from you. That's it for this episode. Catch you next month, and until then, stay invalid.
2: Internet. Everyone is wrong, I just haven't told them
0: yet.